Shot Reverse Shot, a podcast in which we attempt to talk about films within the confines of a particular theme that changes from episode to episode. Uh, I am Joe Gastoning, and uh, joining me as always is Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? I'm very well. How are you today? I'm good, although I went out for a run earlier, and I'm creaking like a like a barn door. Yeah, I went for a run late last night, and when I woke up this morning, my legs had sort of fused. Mm. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. I started walking around like Forrest Gump in his leg braces. Yeah, we're not we're not good for fitness. <laughs> I haven't run no. for ages and now I'm really suffering trying to get back into it. <laughs> um, so yeah, let's just get that tangent out of the way first. Um, uh, this week we are talking uh, about family and the reason we're talking about family uh, is to mark the uh, annual ID Fest that's happening in Derby, uh, the Derby Quad cinema it's a uh, lovely festival that neither of us can go to this year um because uh, i'm working and ed lives in florida yeah um i think the, both of those are, are, are a slight impediment yeah. uh, you went last year though didn't you? did you say it was pretty good yeah it was i went to what like a couple of films last year i couldn't go over the whole thing and uh, yes great atmosphere nice people good venue and a great festival this year um, like I say, they, they do a theme each year, uh, a strand of their films is, is kind of curated to a theme, and this year they've picked uh, Family. Uh, looking at the schedule there, Ed, what films catch your eye? Uh, well, there's loads of them on there that I, I would consider sort of personal favourites, and that, that would be sort of fantastic to see on the big screen, or just in general for the first time. Mm. Um, something like The Straight Story. Great film. The, the, the normal David Lynch film. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is still bizarre as hell because it's about a guy travelling across America on a tractor, um, but it's it's a lovely lovely little film about sort of the, the the ties of family and about a man who decides he's going to go and visit his sort of ill brother before he dies because they need to sort of work some things through, uh, which is a lovely little road movie. Hannah and her sisters, uh, which is definitely in my sort of top three Woody Allen films. Um, it was number one for a long time, but it kind of shifts between that and, and crimes and misdemeanors and uh, and radio days. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so that that's a sort of fantastic film. You know, one of his he doesn't really tend to make films about sort of family relationships. It tends to be more, you know, relationships between men and women, which is a big part of Hannah and her sisters. But also he has sort of the dynamic between the three central the, the three central uh, women, which is uh, very very interesting. Mm. Um, a couple of great Marx Brothers movies, A Night at the Opera and uh, Day at the Races, which are both kind of uh, them at their sort of anarchic best. Uh, and also, um, if you've only ever seen sort of like Duck Soup, which is obviously the kind of the classic, uh, the one that's held up as the, the sort of pinnacle of their work. It's very strange watching um, A Day at the Races and, and A Night at the Opera because they were made for MGM and MGM's kind of thing was it had to have musical numbers in. Right. So there are there are there's a, there's a long there's long stretches in a day at the races where the, the Marx Brothers aren't in it and they just kind of like hand it over to other people who do like who say it's like ballets and sort of big soul and gospel numbers. Wow. Uh, which are really good, but they're not that funny. Right, okay. um, uh, you know, Godfather. You know, don't really need to uh, say much to try and convince people to go and see that because you know it's a, a absolutely stunning uh, and still revelatory piece of work. Um, uh, late Autumn, it's very interesting, and Tokyo Story, two great Ozu films. Late Autumn's quite an interesting choice, because I think that's one of the ones that uh, 
doesn't get talked about all that much. Mm. You know, Tokyo Story, as we've discussed before, you know, is, is in the BFI top ten. Uh, no, sorry, Sight and Sound top ten, maybe in the BFI as well. Yeah, right? probably. Um, you know, it's, it's regularly held up as one of the greatest films ever made. And then people might also talk about, you know, Story of Floating Weeds or uh, Late Spring, which is my personal favourite of sort of Ozu's stuff. Uh, but so you know, but Late Autumn's a very interesting choice. Uh, it's just a really really uh, solid sort of selection of films. Uh, I would quite like to go to the, the Wizard of Oz, the Dark Side of the Rainbow event as well, which is where you can watch the Wizard of Oz with headphones on to try and try and sync it up to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon to see if there's any truth to the nonsense about, you know, about the, there being some sort of weird uh, sync up between the two. Is that something you've ever done before? No, I've seen it. I've watched clips on sort of YouTube where people will do it. And just kind of, and you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting. I don't think there's, uh, I think it's that sort of thing. You know, people say that if you watch, if you look at fire whilst listening to music, the, the sort of the fire will kind of, uh, will seem to sort of match with whatever's happening. I think it's more a case of, you know, if you look into something in, intending to see connections, you will. Mm. You know, I think, and you, at any kind of like minor thing that you think matches up, you kind of go, oh. Mm. Interesting. Maybe um, everything else is matching up. And probably if you combine that with kind of like uh, recreational soft drug use, which is prob- yeah. probably how something like this got started, um, <laughs> you've probably got yourself a nice little urban myth in the making. Yeah, so I, I've never done it myself, but I have uh, the whole thing, but I have seen sort of clips of it and I kind of think, okay, that's quite interesting. And yeah, probably the result of uh, people with too much time on the hands and too many too many drugs. Yeah. Uh, just kind of combining weird pop cultural aspects. Mm, yeah. Um, my personal choices on the the list of films they're showing. I'm really chuffed um, that on the Friday, Friday tenth of May, uh, they are showing Peter Mullen's uh, Orphans. I don't know if you ever seen that. It's the first one we directed. Uh, no, I've only ever seen uh, Ned's, which uh, I wasn't a big fan of. Well, but, uh, Orphans is like the, the kind of it's a really kind of darkly comic film rather than just a kind of grimy uh, kind of the, the, what Ned's was in, eventually. But yeah, uh, Orphans is really fantastic. That uh, or you can you can go and see that or Straight Story. So you're gonna have to kind of uh, kind of make your choice there. Uh, Nil by Mouth. That's a cheery number. Uh, <laughs> showing that on the Friday night. Uh, the Incredibles, which is a really cool uh, Pixar film. I mean, it's my favourite style of all the Pixar films. I do like that kind of '60s kind of Bond shit. Um, what else have we got? Yeah, the Royal Tenenbaums. It's well worth seeing on the big screen. And it's a uh, immaculately composed film. Um, we've talked quite a lot about uh, uh, Wes Anderson's visual stylings, and uh, yeah, that that kind of is one of his best examples. Um, and then on the Sunday, kind of uh, one of the last films showing is uh, We Own the Night, the James Gray film, uh, which is presented by a friend of the show, Adam Batty. Hello. Um, and uh, he's marginally obsessed by James Gray. And, um, you know, some people really like James Gray. The French love him, the Americans, not so much. Um, and We Own the Night is uh, it, uh, its one that I'm, I'm going to go across to Derby and, and see that one because uh, it's uh, the only James Gray film I haven't seen. Have you seen that one? No, I've only seen um, Two Lovers. That's the only great James Gray film I have seen. Because uh, I remember it was uh, it was showing at the the cinema in Sheffield where I used to work, and so I basically did that thing, which I think everyone who's ever worked there does, which is you kind of watch it in increments. Right. Okay. So you, you watch the first ten minutes to make sure the aspect ratio is right, and then you kind of think, oh, I'll check out the rest of it, and you you end up just kind of 
staying in and yeah. <laughs> just watching it and neglecting your other duties. Uh, yeah, that's the only one of his that I've, I've seen, but I really I quite like that one. Yeah, I'd recommend, uh, well, his other film, yeah, The Yards, and um, We Own the Night is the same kind of cast from that. It's uh, Wahlberg and uh, Phoenix. Uh, we played brothers in that. One's a cop, one's a criminal. It's that old chestnut. Um, yeah. But yeah, so uh, there's some great films if you can get down to ID Fest between the 9th and 12th of May then I thoroughly recommend you do um, in terms of family on film Ed um, it seems that filmmakers seem to be like consistently drawn to stories about dysfunctional families over families that are functional um, do families on film or in stories have to be broken to be interesting um, I think it depends on the sort of the focus of the story. But yeah, I think that's probably true because I think there's obviously more room for both drama and sort of comedy if you have people who are um, set against each other in some way, but are also that they can't kind of like separate really because mm. you can never really um, break away from your family, you know, however much you might uh, want to. And I think that's something you can really see in uh, a lot of the films that are on sort of, uh, over the course of the weekend, um, I think there are of of ID Fest. Uh, I think there are some kind of exceptions, as there are to all these sort of things. Like um, you know, we were talking earlier about late autumn and, and late spring. They're kind of two Ozu films, uh, which are essentially about families that get on, but there's there's essentially tension between how well they get on. Because mm. in both, it's about a parent who wants their mm child to kind of get married and kind of move on in the world and a child who doesn't want their parent to be kind of left alone so essentially the tension there is that they both love each other so much that they want what's best for them but what they want uh, what they each want is kind of in contradiction to what the other one wants uh and i think that's a really interesting dynamic but i think generally it's it's just easier to kind of come up with stories where people families are you know there's like maybe a death of a parent and then uh, there's um and you know like there's a step parent come in you know basically all fairy tales um yeah or or you know sort of a film we talked about in the last podcast you know where the world things are you mm. know that comes from that you know from a family that is has suffered from sort of being broken in that regard or from families where people perhaps a bit emotionally distant mm. which I think is a is a particular fascination of um of American cinema there's lots of things about you know any film set in suburbia will pr uh, tends to revolve around that sort of thing you know if you look at like Ang Lee's The, the Ice Storm or um, Sam Mendes's American Beauty mm. are both kind of built upon that idea of families that are you know together in that they all live in the same house and and they all uh, sort of are together in sort of like sort of every sort of legal sense they're not there's no divorce there's no sort of separation in there but sort of emotionally they all you know uh, are, are just on completely different wavelengths. Yeah, it's be up behind the white picket fence, so it's not quite as uh, rosy as it seems. Um, mm. I think, like something you mentioned there, like talking about the kind of um, family kind of disrupted by kind of the arrival of a step parent or death of a parent and fairy tales. I mean, like is Hamlet the template for for most of this? Because I mean, that is kind of the perfect fucked up family story, isn't it? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think uh, I'm sure there's probably uh, antecedents to it somewhere, you know, I'm sure there's probably sort of stuff in Greek literature and, and Roman stuff. But yeah, if you if you're looking at kind of one of the sort of perfect stories about a family that is completely 
sort of messed up by that and obviously you know sort of fratricide which is uh, sort of the ultimate uh the ultimate sort of crime in many ways you know going back to sort of the bible and stuff um, you know that's you know sort of a very potent kind of card to play in terms of storytelling, mm. and you know it, it's obviously something that happens a lot in sort of the history of various monarchies. Because uh, if you're the brother of the king, you probably stand a lot to gain by sort of murdering yeah. <laughs> various members of your family. Um, yeah, so I think that that's kind of a very sort of key template for a family that's just completely. Uh, completely fucked up in a very literate and, and sort of evocative way. So uh, jealousy, kind of uh, uh, regicide aside, um, <laughs> the the uh, the to go back even further, like you said, to kind of Greek and Roman stuff. Oedipus is that the other driving force behind the story? Because he was a motherfucker. Hey, <laughs> nicely done. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think also you know if you look at sort of. Um, sort of Freud sort of obviously kind of brought the sort of the Oedipal myth very strongly into the public consciousness with a lot of his work in sort of the early part of the 20th century sort of maybe not uh, uncoincidentally at the same time the sort of the rise of cinema I think you know that uh, any sort of like sort of artists of that period probably kind of looked at that story and kind of saw something interesting in sort of the idea of the, the, the conflict between the, the man, uh, the, the son and the father in that regard, and the idea of the father wanting to sort of in some way uh, kill the the father, um, arguably best done in the movie Hot Rod by The Lonely Island. Yeah. In, in, which, in which Andy, Andy Samberg wants to beat Ian McShane to death, but needs to uh, perform a stunt to earn money so that he can get well enough to fight him. Um, that movie's great. Yeah, I think yeah. everyone should go and see Hot Rod. Yeah, um, I, I saw it fairly recently, and just that threat. I could have watched those two kind of brawling all day. <laughs> I think uh, completely sidetracked. I, I like the fact that in the middle of that, they have the bit where he just gets really angry and runs through a forest screaming <laughs> yeah. to sort of that 80s-infused music, which <laughs> just comes from nowhere and is, uh, is delightful. Um, but, you know, that's... Uh, and that obviously has its roots in, in Greek myth and Freud. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we have gone from the sublime to the ridiculous there. From Freud and Oedipus to Hot Rod. In 12 easy steps, or yeah. 3 easy steps. Well, that was the first example we could think of when talking about Oedipus. <laughs> the Hot Rod. There you go. Yeah. Um, what uh, filmmakers um, are... Because it is a, a kind of a well... Uh, mind vein of uh, of kind of uh, narrative and dramatic kind of uh, stories, but which filmmakers spring to mind as those to be particularly preoccupied with family in their films? Uh, I think Ozu's one again. Uh, you're going to be talking a lot. I think a lot about him over <laughs> the next hour. Uh, he's you know very a lot of his films are about families in one form or another. You know, um, late spring and late autumn are both about sort of parent child relationships as are um good morning and the silent version of that film uh, i was born but uh, tokyo story is obviously a great film about um sort of family and and sort of the distance between sort of parents and their children once the children grow up and have their own lives um to heartbreaking effect uh you know spielberg i think is someone who's very interested in in family dynamics certainly in his early days you know because he uh, his his father left when he was very young, and um, if you look at a lot of his early films, there's lots of you know sort of like uh, there's a sense of sort of 
Brody in Jaws is he seems to be a slightly aloof dad. He's not a bad father, but you know there's kind of a sense that maybe he doesn't quite relate to his son. Mm. Um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind is obviously you know it ends with the father abandoning his family, uh, which is something Spielberg said that he would not have done had he made it sort of ten years later when he himself was a father. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can definitely see there's a kind of a, a, a vein throughout his his work which is about sort of dysfunctional or broken families. Poltergeist, which may or may not be a Steven Spielberg film, mm. uh, depending on who you who you listen to. But, you know, he wrote it and, and produced it. Um, and directed it. And directed it. So, yeah. yeah, I'd say it's a Spielberg film. Yeah, pretty much. Um, the Andersons, Wes and Paul Thomas, not brothers, but uh, both obviously are interested in sort of like, like pretty much all Paul Thomas Anderson films are about a father-son relationship in, in some regards, with mm-hmm. the exception of, Punch Drunk Love's kind of the only one. Yeah, that's that, yeah. that a very big family film. There's a big family in it. Um, you know, a, a, a brother and seven sisters? Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so all of his films are about family in some way, but usually it's about, it's about a sort of a turbulent father-son relationship, either biological or, in the case of something like Boogie Nights or The Master, in a sort of surrogate sort of father figure sort of way. Uh, and sort of Wes Anderson's films, particularly Royal Tenenbaums, uh, is you know a very much about a broken family. So, uh, yes, uh, uh, can you think of any others who kind of are, are fascinated by family? Uh, Coppola for me is the big one. Um, I mean, not in like all his work, but there is a kind of a thread running through his his films uh, of a kind of um, a family either estranged or, in the case of the Godfather films, very tight knit family um, mm. who are kind of. Uh, torn apart by various kind of internal struggles um but also um kind of there's a thing about his films the kind of um jealousies between people and uh like there's a really good uh bit in tetro the kind of the last great film he did kind of about creative jealousies between people um and i always kind of wondered whether that was born out of the fact that his family is so goddamn big and so goddamn creative and successful um mm. because you know Everyone's a coppola, uh, pretty much, uh, and they're all pretty successful at what they've done. And uh, yeah, the, the Tetro thing was a really interesting example, kind of, um, of that. He's kind of the brother that kind of escapes his dad's shadow as a composer. He's kind of like a kind of tortured genius uh, type thing. It's it's very much in there. I think a lot of that comes to do with uh, the, that kind of like big Catholic upbringing as well. I mean, that's why he starts The Godfather with a wedding, one would presume. Yeah, or, or why you'd be drawn to something like Rumblefish, which has that at the heart of it is a very um, sort of strong relationship between a, a young man who sort of idolises his older brother, mm. which I think is something that he kind of uh, I think that's something that seems kind of quite he seems to be quite drawn to and kind of uh, resurfaces sort of nearly thirty years later in sort of Tetro. Yeah, here's a question for you. Ed. Okay, uh, are the Corleone family dysfunctional? Because, hear me out, they're very tight-knit, they go by a code of honour, but, um, and, you know, they make a point of saying family first, uh, you know, uh, Fredo takes uh, Mo Green's side in argument, and, and uh, Al Pacino tells him never to take sides with the family again, um, but on the other hand, he does murder his own brother, <laughs> so are the Corleone's a dysfunctional family? I think they're not before Michael takes over. Right. Because I, th- I think he takes... I think there's a point at which loyalty to family becomes kind of perverse and uh, essentially allows you to destroy the family by um, 
essentially saying that any slight against it is worthy of being murdered for. Mm. You know, um, you could kind of see that in uh, to kind of offer a real life parallel. Um, if you look at kind of like sort of extremist kind of religious groups, you know, there's the idea of that it gets to a certain point where any sort of questioning of authority um, is enough to get you sort of sent out, regardless of whether or not you're actually taking sides against them. And I think you can see that in the Corleone family is that it gets to a point where if you just express, if you express some sort of like divergent opinion, you know, that's enough to kind of be kind of the black sheep of the family or to get shot in the back of the head on a boat. Mm. Um, you know, I think that it, prior to... I, I, that just to me doesn't seem like something Vito would do. Right. You know, uh, when he was the head of the family. But once Michael takes over, he seems to take the family first thing. Or possibly because of, you know, the, the, the effects of the death of... Um, uh, what's James Carlin's character called? Sonny. Of Sonny. Oh, that's really easy as well. Mm, uh, you know, the effects of the death of Sonny um, has on him, because that's obviously, this. that's the thing that sort of acts as his kind of anointment into the, the criminal side of the family. That's the thing that makes him say, you know, I want to go and kill the bastards who did this, you know. Mm. Um, I think, you know, from there, it's sort of, it's, it, he seems to kind of take sort of loyalty to the family to the nth degree, really. Yeah, he takes it a bit too far, doesn't he? That's, that's, that's what we're trying to say. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Um, you're saying what kind of we, we've discovered in in our kind of um, uh, opening that um, the broken family is a kind of a very well tro well trodden path right the way back to Oedipus to Hot Rod now. Um, yeah. But what I would wonder is because uh, cinema is a fairly new medium, is it the primary uh, chronicler of divorce, which is uh, something that is um, commonplace uh, in the 20th century and beyond? Um, probably, because obviously, I mean, divorce is in some ways uh, a 20th century phenomenon. Obviously it existed before the 20th century, but when you get sort of to the sort of the mid, the mid 20th century, it's something that is really frowned upon mm. and it's, it's a taboo thing. Yeah. Thanks um, Henry VIII. <laughs> uh, he's responsible for so much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mainly the chicken shortage of um, 1572. Mm, uh, loved it. Just <laughs> took all of them. Um, you know, basically, uh, he... Uh, it, it, the 20th century is when it becomes destigmatized. Mm. You know, prior to that, it's like if you get divorced, you know, uh, you know, you can see this is something like Anna Karenina, you know, the idea that if a woman gets divorced, she's essentially shunned by society and sort of for a man it's essentially not that big of a, de a deal but you know since women are probably the ones who would want to get out of the horrible marriage and men probably would just because they had all the power it didn't really there was no reason why they would not want to be married mm. you know it, it was very sort of a one-sided sort of thing but you know sort of film comes along and I think film kind of like doesn't popularize divorce uh, no it's not like everyone watched it and thought wow I need to get me some of that Mm. Um, but I think it's it's kind of the art form that was able to sort of respond to the trends uh, most quickly because obviously it takes less time to sort of make a film than to write a book or to, to write a, to make a great film than to write a great book. Mm. Um, and you know, sort of, you can kind of take it into sort of a wider sort of marketplace than that. And so, so you can see the kind of, you know, in sort of like the fifties, the idea of people getting 
divorced is really taboo by sort of 1979, you know, Kramer versus Kramer is being nominated for Best Picture. Mm. You know, you could see the kind of the radical sort of change in how people consider divorce. Yeah. What kind of uh, big films st- uh, stand out for as the kind of best depictions of that kind of uh, kind of separation of choice uh, in families? I mean, The Squid and the Whale is the one that kind of pops out to me. That's a, a really great film. Yeah, that one's uh, quite harrowing. Yeah. Um, in, in its regard, it's very sort of bleak. Uh, now Barnbach doesn't seem like he'd be a fun guy at parties. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Kramer versus Kramer is the one that kind of leaps out uh, to me. Um, I think there's lots of what really good ones that have it as kind of like a background sort of thing, because obviously um, Manhattan has that in the background. It's like Woody Allen's character's uh, divorced from uh, Meryl Streep. Um, was the second film in sort of 1979 she was in where she was divorced she must have just been typecast you know, in, yeah typecast or in a bad relationship and really wanted to uh, uh, get away from it so did was, someone like E.T. fall into that category yes because that's a, yeah that's a very very good one um, I'm sure there are others but I can't really think of them off the, the top of the head that are kind of really great ones because usually divorce is more kind of something that's kind of a setup for other things. Yeah. You know, you know, the divorce has already happened or it's kind of like the, the, the threat that hangs over uh, in the background sort of in any film where sort of someone has an affair or or something, you know, there's always the kind of the, the dread that that's going to kind of like strike them down at some point. Mm. Um, there are a couple of films on the ID Fest uh, schedule which uh, talk about the idea of alternate families or surrogate families, the two films that they've chosen uh, to illustrate this is The Warriors, where um, a gang is going to stand in for a the kind of family unit. Uh, and the other film they picked is Clerks, in which uh, a series of arseholes uh, <laughs> stand in for the family unit. What other films can you think of um, that kind of have the that kind of best kind of alternate family unit made up of people who aren't related by blood or by marriage? Uh, I think um, a good one from sort of a recent film would be Martha Marcy May Marlene, yeah, or M and M and M and M, as I like to call it. M and M and M and M. Basically, any film about a cult in some regards is is essentially about an alternate family because the whole point about being in a cult is you kind of they're, they're meant to be your world mm. essentially. Uh, you're not allowed to know anyone outside of the cult or, or associate with anyone else. And Martha Marcy May Marlene is a, is a really good example of that particular sort of kind of trope. Yeah. Um, so a film we mentioned briefly earlier, Boogie Nights, is a great one. Because um, that's essentially uh, about uh, porn stars becoming a certain kind of surrogate family for each other, uh, and essentially enabling each other sort of on various sort of self-destructive uh, paths. And that's really interesting, Boogie Nights, because um, they can't actually maintain any actual family relationships of their own. So, like, kind of uh, the, the Mark Wahlberg character is kind of estranged from his home life uh, and also uh, the Julianne Moore character is, is she loses custody of her kid um, and she kind of very much takes on the Heather Graham character as a kind of actual daughter and there's actually a scene where they say well, you, can you be my real mum and all this kind of stuff so it's a really interesting way that they outside of that family unit which is kind of crazy and messed up and kind of fueled by coke and, and kind of porn that they can't actually func- function in their own families yeah they seem to be kind of drawn to each other as sort of people who are uh pretty much just completely broken mm. but but are just kind of like uh, they kind of fall into each other and 
because they're all kind of broken in the same sort of way, they don't really judge each other in the way that everyone else who seems to be relating the, to them would arguably rightly do. Yeah. Sort of for the, the stupid choices they make in life. Uh, with the exception, obviously, of William H. Macy, who very much does judge what his wife does yeah. uh, in the course of that film. Mm. Um, another good one, uh, I think, uh, would be sort of uh, Near Dark, the Catherine Bigelow vampire movie. Yeah, where um, they, 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 they kind of... They're, you have to stick together, don't you, vampires, <laughs> really? Uh, if, yeah. If you're, um, if you're trying to travel in groups, it's probably best to, to go with them. That's a great family unit as well, because there is a kind of patriarch and... Uh, and the kind of the traditional roles are kind of filled out, um, but yeah, that's a really messed up family. Well, they drink blood. That's quite bad. Yeah, I think that's something you kind of see in uh, in a lot of fantasy films. Is essentially people become kind of surrogate families. I think you, uh, in um, sort of Lord of the Rings, you could say that all the characters in the Fellowship basically become a surrogate family to each other in that kind of um, you know sort of happy few band of brothers kind of idea mm. that because you go on this great journey together and because you sort of fight and and die uh you know next to each other that you are kind of joined in some way uh through that and you know in in horror you know people who are uh in, in vampire fiction particularly because you can also look at sort of into the vampire yeah which is uh you know at a certain point the family unit is brad pitt um kirsten dunst and tom cruise going around sort of murdering people and sort of feasting on them mm. um, because you know the whole thing in, in sort of that sort of strain of sort of romantic vampire fiction is you are doomed to walk alone forever unless you sort of turn people and have them for company pretty much mm. which is something that kind of is coming up in the uh, Jim Jarmusch's uh, Only Lovers Left Alive which is a vampire film that kind of seems to draw upon that idea yeah, the film that does that terribly is last year's Dark Shadows, which is one of the worst films of last year. It was fucking awful. Yeah, that is pretty. Uh, that is pretty dreadful. I do. I do like the bit in it where um, Chloe Grace Moretz reveals that she is a werewolf, and just kind of says, "Yeah, I'm a werewolf. Let's not make a big thing over it." Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. I think is is surprisingly funny in a film that's otherwise kind of bereft of sort of anything of real interest or charm. Yeah, well, it's um, basically just a shit version of the Adams Family. Yes, a very shit version of the Adams Family. Yeah, they seem Which to function alright, don't they, the Adams Family, yeah. considering they are uh, kind of supernatural freaks. Yeah, they're one of the healthiest families that um, ends up sort of driving people insane and murdering them, or, or causing people to sort of murder themselves. <laughs> as happens at the end of Adam's Family Values with the uh, the carry homage, which is uh, great. Um, you know, you know. As apart from that, they seem very well adjusted. Yeah. They get on very well. Surprisingly well, so. Um, yeah, um, in terms of um, actual family, so people who are related, um, there was, there's been quite a lot of kind of dynasties on film, hasn't there? There's been uh, a lot of kind of um, generational families moving through films. Talked about the Copplers, I mean, that's enormous. It, uh, related to... Francis, you've got his dad, Carmine, then you've got like Talia Shire, you've got Roman Coppola, you've got Nicolas Cage, you've got Schwartzman, uh, his daughter that I can't remember the name of that everyone seems to like that I don't. Sophia. That's her. Um, and yeah, it's a, you know, it's a pretty well-rounded family. They could probably do a job. Um, there, what other big kind of dynasties are there that are, that are kind of um, important in kind of film? Uh, I think one of the sort of the, the earliest, in, in terms of 
the earliest that kind of still persists to this day mm-hmm. persists persists as if it's a medical condition. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is the Barrymore clan? Yeah. You know, in the early the early days of cinema, you got Lionel and John Barrymore um, sort of going down right through to Drew Barrymore, who's still sort of a very big presence in in cinema in terms of you know sort of, as we talked about. Uh, before sort of her work as a producer as well as an actor. Mm-hmm. Um, the Houstons, who are my favourites of the sort of the dynasties. Love the uh, Houstons. Because you start off with Walter, who was, you know, recognised as one of the great actors of his day. Uh, John, who's a fantastic director who sort of made multiple brilliant films over the course of a sort of 40-year career, mm-hmm. uh, starting with uh, The Maltese Falcon in 1941, and ending with the dead in 1985, mm-hmm. um, and obviously he, you know uh, his his children Angelica and uh, Jack, who is uh, and um, Danny, Danny, yeah. So you know, sort of his his uh, his kids are still uh, sort of out there doing sort of really great work, uh, and and he has the unique distinction of being the only director in uh, history to have directed both his father and his daughter to Academy Awards. Mm, yes, Treasure of Sierra Madre, wasn't it, with, uh, with Walter? Who, what, did his, uh, what did Angelica win for? He, for Prizzy's Honour. Ah, yes. Yeah, which course. is a, a fun film that we, you would not expect was an Oscar winner. Right, OK. Um, the Marx Brothers? Yeah, The Marx Brothers uh, is a great one. It's very interesting in that they were, I was thinking about this, they were a family that never played brothers on film. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were always essentially strangers who kind of muddled together to get through whatever situation they were. But what was kind of great about them was that as soon as they all made up, then they basically acted as brothers. They all were kind of in sync and always kind of very sort of simpatico with each other, mm-hmm. uh, which is what's kind of like, uh, is kind of like joyous about it is that they essentially act like sort of dicks towards each other in a way that family members would do, mm. but which you would not put with, with someone who you weren't related to, uh, which I always find uh, to be a great deal of fun. I never actually thought that they were genuinely brothers. I no, it, When I found out years later they were actually related, I was like, ah, oh, well, there you go. It does seem like the sort of thing that you would do kind of as a, a vaudeville troupe is like, what angle could we have? It's like, uh, we're brothers. Yeah. But no, the, 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 the five brothers in total, Harpo, Chico, Groucho, Zeppo and Gummo, uh, obviously had a great influence. Although mm. Gummo wasn't in any of the films. He just became a ridiculously successful theatrical agent. Um, Is that true? Yeah. yeah. I know yeah, Gummo's not in the films, but I didn't know what he did. Yeah, well, he was in the troupe when they were on vaudeville. Uh, and then he left to become uh, an aide, to set up an agency before the films started up. And then when Zeppo, when they stopped making films for Paramount, Zeppo left and, and went and joined the agency as well. And they both ran it and they helped uh, to kind of break a lot of sort of stars. Jack Benny was one of their big ones that they, they kind of broke and uh, they persisted for a great many years. Yeah. And that film by Harmony Green, Gummo, isn't about Gummo Marks, no? Uh, regrettably. Oh, that's no, a shame. I was kind of always wondering whether, like, you know, family functions, when I found out they were related, like, he, there would be, like, a straight brother who was like, oh, God, these guys, <laughs> and they're just, like, <laughs> arsing around, and he's, like, an accountant or whatever. Um, there's quite a lot of uh, acting kind of dynasties, multi-generational. The Bridges springs, springs to mind, uh, the Douglases. Um, uh, are there any other ones you can think of? Like, uh, Disney's a big one, isn't it, in terms of, like, making films? 
Yeah, Disney, obviously, because, I mean, like, Walt was the only one who was kind of, like, a filmmaker, but once the Walt Disney Company was established, like, loads of members of his family were kind of important members. Roy Disney was sort of a key figure in the, the, the company's uh, revival in the 80s, when he basically, you know, uh, forced out the people who were uh, not helping the company at all. Uh, and sort of brought in people who he felt could actually sort of return it to its former glory. Uh, and then again, sort of when they wanted to force out Eisner, it was sort of Roy Disney who was kind of played a key part in that. Um, one that's kind of sort of a nascent dynasty is the sort of the Miyazaki dynasty, because you have uh, Hayao Miyazaki, who's, you know, one of the, the great animated directors uh, currently working, and his son Goro, who is... Uh, directed uh, two films today and I believe is working on a third mm-hmm. uh, I always kind of feel you've uh, you you can't win really if uh, if you go into the same field as your immensely successful father in that regard because all anyone's going to be doing is judging you by what it is it's like you know Sean and Julian Lennon becoming sort of like musicians it's mm-hmm. like you could be good but chances are no one's going to kind of go yeah that uh that sean lennon album it's just as good as rubber soul yeah (laughs) it's just as good or better you know but i think it's it's very interesting when you get sort of like uh families where the sort of the successive generations kind of build upon uh what the previous ones have done or in the case of the houston's where they essentially uh the son doesn't become an actor he just becomes a director and sort of leapfrogs it Mm. Although he does turn in a, a like an acting role that is one of the most terrifying of all time in yeah. uh, Chinatown. Oh, I thought you meant as Noah in uh, the Bible in the beginning. <laughs> no, but he does play a character called Noah in Chinatown, who is uh, yes. Well, as we've discussed, bad dad uh, previously. Yeah. Um, that's a, a kind of a theme that we've not really touched on. The uh, the theme that shall not. Uh, I kind of uh, mentioned its name. Incest is uh, kind of surprisingly not really that much talked about in film. There's uh, a few bits and pieces, and Arrested Development pretty much got it covered on television. Um, is there any film films you can think of that spring to mind other than Chinatown that kind of uh, go around incest? Because we may as well play the incest card right now. Uh, no, I think television. You've got Arrested Development and Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of there's a lot of incest in Game of Thrones. Um, Spanky the Monkey, that's a film where that man, he has sex with his own mum. Yes, that's the only other one that kind of, it's, it's, it's something that I think just makes everyone very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, is it making uh, you but, uncomfortable now if I speak about it? Uh, a little bit. Right, okay. uh, No, it's, it's <laughs> very, no, I think it's like, it's kind of that, that whole sort of uh, eatable thing again. I think, you know, if you look at something like Psycho, I think that's kind of an undercurrent of it. It's, it's not actual incest, but the idea of uh, just like that sort of like fascination with the mother character to sort of a psychotic, well, literally psychotic extent, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of runs uh, through that. Yeah. Um, oh, the king. That has a that's a very strong incest. Is uh, that the Gail Garcia Bernal one? The yeah, James the Marsh James Marsh. Yeah. yeah, that's a great yeah. film, man. That's one. That's one that's like that never really gets mentioned. No, um, I think it's it's a it's a one of the the great unhelded films especially if you're looking at sort of like great revenge films because that is one hell of a revenge <laughs> that he takes yeah it, it impacts quite the punch at the end doesn't it like mm. and um yeah like the extent to which someone will go to to get back on someone it's kind of 
Yeah, I, I, I haven't seen that since I saw it the pictures, actually. I'll um, kind of endeavour to see that one again. So, right, we've got the incest thing out of the way. <laughs> we've, we've got that done. So uh, now is Got that time. covered. Yeah, we've got it covered. So just watch the rest of development for, for kind of two incest gags a show, <laughs> guaranteed, um, if, you, if that's your bag. If it's not, then, yeah, I don't know. You're watching the wrong show. Um, okay, uh, are we ready for a top ten? Uh, yes. Top ten. Um, what are we doing for a top ten this weekend? We are doing top ten families in film. These are the, the families that to us kind of are the most effective or embody sort of the idea of family the best. Mm-hmm. Um, although, looking at my choices, uh, that's probably a weird way of wording it. Yeah, what's your first one? Uh, my first one is the family from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, great. Uh, because, for me, that's kind of the thing that really raises the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to one of the all-time great horror films, is you're watching it for, you know, and you kind of think, this is a, a really uh, aggressively uncomfortable and mm-hmm. horrifying slasher film. It can't get any uh, worse. It can't get any worse. And then, you know, the, the girl escapes and she meets the policeman, and you think, oh, it's good. Uh, or, or you kind of think in the back of your head, Leatherhead's going to show up and uh, Leatherface is going to show up and, and chop that policeman to pieces. And then it's like, nope, he's Leatherface's brother. Mm-hmm. And they've got a decrepit grandfather who can't hold a mallet but will make a, an, on, a God's honest attempt to smash that poor young girl's head in. And, you know, it's just, it's just one of those kind of things that you just you don't quite know what's going to happen. Mm. And I think the main thing is that you've got this sort of like this twisted and horrifying, disturbing family that just kind of show up for the last 20 minutes of the film and really just kind of take things to a whole new level of of terror. Yeah, and it's kind of, um, there's a real kind of grim humour in that scene, the dinner scene, when they're all sat around. Principally, that bit with the the hammer is, um, is, is really kind of black, humour taken to a kind of like an absolute extreme because like I say you watch that film and you think well I, I don't know if I can take any more of this then it gets to that scene the kind of pace slows right down but it's even worse than when like someone's being chased through an open field by a man wearing another man's face and wielding a chainsaw yeah definitely um, what's your first choice? Um, I'm going to continue the dark theme and I'm going to go with the unnamed family from Dogtooth the, uh, the Greek film from a few years ago did you see it? Uh, no, I haven't seen that one. Dogtooth is a film in which um, a family are uh, effectively homeschooled um, and don't have any interaction with the outside world whatsoever. Uh, the father, for reasons that are unknown and never explained, uh, teaches them the words mean other things. Like I think they're, they're taught that zombie is a is a flower. Um, they get played like Frank Sinatra records, and he tells them. Uh, translates it into Greek for them, but he tells them it's completely wrong, and he he kind of convinces them that it's a um, a message from their uncle. Um, it's such a weird film. It, it kind of at the time it drew a lot of parallels to the Fritzel case, but actually the the script was kind of written and production was started way before that was kind of uh, uh, discovered. But it is a very very dark and deeply disturbing film in which uh, kids are taught that kittens or cats in general are the most dangerous creatures on earth and it's it's an incredible film i, I kind of hardly recommend you uh, 
watch it, but it is a family unit like you have never seen before and would not <laughs> want to kind of uh, ever encounter. Uh, what's your next pick? Uh, next one, again, continuing the dark theme. It gets happier as it goes along, this yeah. uh, my selections. Uh, is the film We Are What We Are by Jorge uh, Michel Grace, mm-hmm. which is uh, a Mexican film uh, from a couple of years ago. Um, have you seen this one? Um, I haven't, but I think I know what it is. Is it the Cannibal film? It is. It's ah. the Cannibal film. I saw it at the uh, Sagoid Screen Horror Festival in Sheffield a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Mexican film uh, about a family of uh, cannibals who sort of uh, survive by sort of devouring sort of the homeless. And uh, the film's great because it's essentially a, a sort of a metaphor for sort of the hard scrabble existence of uh, sort of the, the poor in Mexico who are essentially left to sort of rot and die and sort of fend for themselves whilst the government aren't interested at all. Uh, but it's also just, it's, it's a really engaging family drama just separate from all the killings because the sort of relationships between all the various characters are really well worked out. I mean, it starts with sort of the father dies at the very beginning. The first, the, the first scene of the film is the father uh, falling to his death and sort of spewing up this kind of black liquid in a shopping mall where um, he kind of falls down, dies, and then these men just kind of pick it up and just kind of start mopping the floor. Like, mm. no criminal investigation. It's just kind of like, oh, well... A poor man's died on the floor, let's just get him out of the way. Mm. And then, um, you know, the police kind of investigate and find, like, human flesh inside of him and start trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And it's interesting because his death then just, like, throws the family into complete disarray because they've got this ritual that they're sort of kind of, like, talking about and you get the sense that it's, they're going to sacrifice someone and eat him. Um, uh, but, you know, it's just essentially about the, 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 you know, like the young kids kind of like dealing with their burgeoning sexuality as well. So it has all of this kind of like real sort of family dynamic stuff going on at the same time that, you know, the big crisis for the family is like, how are we going to find someone to murder and devour? Mm. Uh, and it's just a really, it's, it's a, a, such a bizarre and fascinating film. Uh, which is uh, has been remade, I believe, as an American remake throughout this year, which uh, I am very interested in seeing because if it uh, if it's even half as weird as the original, it's probably going to be one of the strangest mainstream horror films in years. Um, my next choice is the Cody family from the Australian crime thriller Animal Kingdom. Uh, I know you've seen that one, haven't you? Ed? Yes, I'm a big fan of that one. I just saw. Uh, to the extent that every time Ben Mendelsohn shows up in a film now, I am terrified, regardless of what he's playing. He was in um, he was in an episode of Girls recently as Jemima's dad, mm. and as soon as he showed up, he was just like, "Oh, Hannah's gonna die." Yeah, something <laughs> something awful is going to happen, and it's going to involve heroin, probably. Um, yeah, this is um, a kind of uh, very kind of dark take on that kind of Godfather dynamic, isn't that kind of crime family film, this time ruled over by a terrifying patriarch uh, called Smurf, played by Jackie Weaver, um, who is marvellous. Everyone in that film is fantastic. But it's about a kind of a slightly strange family member who's been out of the kind of criminal activities, whose mum dies and he kind of has to then be kind of taken in by this new family he doesn't really want to be in, and he gets kind of sucked into this world. And it's one of the most relentlessly tense films I think I've ever seen, because even a scene in which... 
two people are just sat talking and you think, oh no, this is going to end badly. Yeah, the scene in particular that we were alluding to with the heroine mm. is is just one of the most harrowing uh, pieces of uh, scenes in sort of any film I've seen in the last sort of three or four years. Yeah. And you just kind of you just sit sat, sitting there think, I you know I just want this scene to end, not in a kind of like this is terrible sort of way, but in a something terrible is about to happen, mm. and I don't want it to, but I know it is. Mm. Uh, and that's the, the the genius of that film is it's just so unbearably tense, like from sort of minute from beginning to end, uh, and particularly sort of when, for example, they sort of murder the only likable character in the first sort of twenty minutes, yeah, um, which you don't see coming, mm. uh, <laughs> and just kind of like sets up the sort of the way the film just kind of completely wrong foots you from then. And, you know, it does have those two... Jackie Weaver got the sort of all of the, the press because she got the Oscar nomination and, you know, deserved it because, you know, the sort of the scene where she kind of reveals herself to be the character, who she really is, is, uh, is, is, is very impressive. But, you know, Ben Mendelsohn is just such a, a, a vile kind of character in that. It's kind of he's kind of unforgettable in just and you know as I say he's completely coloured my sort of impression of him as an actor. Yeah, those two are the ones who have done the best out of that. But uh, the the um, young actor who plays uh, I can't remember the, the character's name is it TJ or something like that. Um, uh, yeah, I think something like that. Yeah, um, James Freshfield is the name of the actor. I thought he was absolutely astonishing. It was an amazing debut turn. I was kind of half expecting to see him go on to much bigger things, but I've not really heard much from him. Uh, no, I haven't. I, I hope he does do well. Although I think what was interesting about that was he was kind of sort of a blank slate of a character, which is very tough to do without seeming boring. Yeah. But you kind of got the sense that he was really calculating in that sense because he kind of knew that everyone around him was terribly dangerous. Yeah. Uh, uh, and you know that he should try and not to get involved, but sort of ir- ir- uh, inexorably does get sort of dragged into this terrifying world of, of crime and death and destruction. Mm. Uh, to, to, so kill, yeah. Yeah. to kill the tension for those listening at home, um, James Freshville uh, has been in a couple of films I've not heard of, so probably rubbish if I haven't heard of them, but he's in a film in 2014 that's currently filming called Animal Rescue, and I wonder whether that's either a, <laughs> a kind of knockabout comedy in the vein of like Marmaduke or something about like you know animals in a, in a shelter, or whether it's a really ill-conceived sequel to Animal Kingdom. <laughs> I think that's the one... You know, there have been pictures of Tom Hardy holding a puppy circulating online. Yes. I, I think that's the film that they're filming. So, <laughs> Animal Rescue. Assuming he doesn't uh, murder the puppy, I, I imagine it'll probably be fairly light-hearted. Mm. And filming's probably delayed because of Rolf Harris's recent legal troubles. Well, obviously. Yeah. Uh, what's your next pick? Uh, my next one's a film I mentioned earlier, uh, Late Spring by Yasujiro Ozu, uh, which is a, a, a great uh, drama about uh, a, a father-daughter relationship. Uh, the daughter wants to kind of do right by the father and stay with him uh, and sort of look after him in his old age. The father doesn't want her to sort of essentially waste her life just staying with him. He wants her to get married and go out there and kind of live her own life. Uh, and you know, as I was saying earlier, it's, it's an interesting dynamic and interesting tension because essentially what it is is two people who love each other so much, but their love kind of uh, causes sort of friction between them because what they want 
that they want the best for the other person but the other person's interests sort of clash with theirs mm-hmm. and it's like a lot like a lot of ozu it's 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 really it's essentially a com it's a kind of a comedy of manner manners or manners or a drama of manners um which uh you know is is really entertaining because essentially it's you know a bunch of matchmaking and trying to uh, these characters trying to maneuver to try and get the best for the other character but it's also uh, heartbreaking because at the end of it there has to be that separation and uh you know the father all the way through is kind of acting as if you know this is uh you know this is you know what i want and it is what you never doubt that that's what he wants but you know when he's faced with the reality of being alone you know it's just crushing mm. it's it's a really melancholy film uh but it's it's just so so beautiful and the the relationship between the two is is uh, beautifully drawn I'm kind of a little bit underseen. I say a little bit underseen when it comes to Ozu. I've seen two Ozu films. Uh, one is Tokyo Story. I believe uh, that's his most popular work. Um, mm. But the other one is one that no one else I've ever met has seen, which is called uh, Record of a Tenement Gentleman. I have seen that. Oh, yeah. After, it's, after you mentioned it before and I said it sounded like a Kinks album. Ah, right. Okay. What did you think of that one? It was really good. It was really entertaining. Yeah, it was great. I really enjoyed it. And uh, it's a good is, It's only 70 minutes long. Yeah, it's 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 one of the better under ninety minutes films I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, and uh, as, if we use that as a category now. Yeah, well, we we probably should. Um, my next choice is I'm going to pick um the Parish family from the documentary that came out last year or year before I can't quite remember called Bombay Beach, which was uh, one of my favourite films from the Docfest of 2011. It's an amazing kind of hypnotic journey through this kind of peculiar community who reside in uh, the Salton Sea area of California um, which is a kind of uh, was supposed to be an oasis in the desert it was supposed to be a they made a big artificial lake there and it was supposed to be where everyone went on their holidays but it kind of all died and the dream died and what's left is this kind of disparate group of kind of individuals drawn there or kind of forced there um, by you know for various reasons and and uh, the families and the people that remain are kind of fascinating and uh, the film is is incredible it's one of the most amazing documentaries ever it does play with what a documentary is because a lot of it's kind of staged and there's dance numbers in it and the music's amazing and it features music by Beirut and Bob Dylan and it's just incredible but central to this is uh, a family called the Parish family who um, are so peculiar. Uh, in the sense that the parents were indicted with terrorism offences, um, and like you know, they were kind of seen as as your kind of uh, dangerous kind of right wing militia type people, and they were just. But then you get, you meet them, and you kind of get the impression like were they just pissed up and kind of blowing up cans of gasoline with fireworks, <laughs> or you know, is there something more sinister going on here? But at the heart of it is is the kind of the youngest kid uh, who is uh, this small beautiful little boy who is just completely fried on prescription drugs he's kind of on Ritalin to control his behavior but he's kind of caught in this horrible kind of cycle of, of not being able to escape where he's from but also you know wanting to escape himself and not being able to and just being kind of completely fried on on kind of psychotropic drugs and it's just heartbreaking to watch it but like it's a just a real fascinating portrait of of, of a family and a kind of crazy bizarre situation um you've not seen bombay beach yet have you yet no i added it to my next netflix queue yes it is and it's been on there for a while but i i 
will try to get it watched. It's proper fantastic, and uh, I'd recommend uh, everyone watch it and everyone watch and kind of feel like they want to just save this kid and adopt them, which is uh, you know not possible. Um, but like the director Alma Harrell regularly tweets at how the kids came on, saying he's okay, he's all right, he's off Ritalin now, and he's. You know, he's doing okay at school and stuff, which is great that we kind of, you know, get those updates because uh, I'd feel terrible if anything bad happened to him. Um, yeah. What's your next choice? My next choice is uh, one that's uh, showing at ID Fest. It is uh, The Royal Tenenbaums, directed mm-hmm. by Wes Anderson and about a family called The Tenenbaums. Yeah. Um, uh, owing a lot to the work of uh, J.D. Salinger, it's about this kind of uh, up, sort of uh, this kind of like uh, upper middle class... Uh, sort of New York family with these three kids who in their early years were these kind of like protégés, you know, real geniuses, uh, not protégés, prodigies, mm-hmm. uh, these sort of real genius kids who, you know, were really good at, you know, sports or business or sort of writing and sort of uh, over the years they, their talents kind of get squandered and they, and that leads to sort of certain bitterness. They blame their parents played by Angela, Angelica Houston, the aforementioned uh, Angelica Houston and Gene Hackman. Yeah. And uh, Gene Hackman's character, Royal Tenenbaum, uh, says that he wants to, you know, he wants to make things well and he shows up and lies about having cancer um, in order to kind of reconnect with his family, uh, which goes about as well as uh, you might expect. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a really beautifully drawn and incredibly funny uh film about sort of like the 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 kind of like various dysfunctions and bitterness that kind of grows up throughout the years between all the members of this family and uh it's for me it's my favorite um Wes Anderson film because I really do like the kind of the relationships between the various ten of arm kids and between the and how they relate to their parents I think it's great yeah, it's it's a fantastic film in the sense that um, you can find something to relate to in all these characters, even though they seem so kind of uh, peculiarly drawn. Um, there is something of that, and I think Gene Hackman in that is one of the great dads. He's an absolute rascal who is mm-hmm. will think nothing of taking his grandkids to play uh, kind of street side crap games. And then what, what is that line he says where they, they're playing craps and they win a load of money and he says, all right, boys, let's hit the cemetery. Is that where he yeah. is? Yeah, yeah. And then they go on the back of garbage trucks. They kind of hang on to that. And uh, am I right in thinking that was Hackman's last film? He signed out on the Tenenbaums. No, his last film is, uh, he made a few years after that. Um, I want to say it's town and country. But I may be wrong with that. Oh, that's a shame. It would be great to have gone out on the Tenenbaums and, and more particularly on that role. Um, yeah, and it's weird that like my favourite Wes Anderson film is Rushmore um, and there's a very, very, very different father-son relationship depicted in that than there is in the Tenenbaums. There's his relationship with Seymour Cassell who's just a kind of humble hairdresser is uh, completely odds with Gene Hackman's uh, lying bastard of a dad who kind of fakes cancer. Yeah, it's... Uh... It's a very interesting sort of dynamic. I really like how he relates to all of his kids who kind of all hate him to various degrees. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of all, uh, Ben Stiller, who's the one who really just won't fall for it, Um, but has the kind of a heartbreaking line of the film where after uh, after Owen Wilson, high on drugs, accidentally uh, crashes into the front of the family house uh, and, you know, he... uh, 
uh, Royal are talking afterwards, and he just says, you know, it's been a it's been a tough year because obviously it's been a year like since his his wife died and everything like that, and he just kind of like breaks down, mm. which is kind of the the emotional kind of like uh, crux of their sort of relationship. Uh, and I think that that, that relationship is, uh, is is fantastic. Uh, the last film that uh, Gene Hackman was in was uh, Welcome to Mooseport. Town and Country is the last film that Warren Beatty has been in. So uh, it's uh, th- that's where I got confused. Yeah. Uh, he was well, also before then he was in Runaway Jewelry. Oh God, he really should have uh, hit it and quit with uh, yeah. with the Tenenbaums. Um, yeah, uh, we were saying before, uh, before we kind of uh, started recording that Wes Anderson's parents got divorced. I think we were we were kind of just like chatting about why he seems to kind of be focused on family the way he is. And, and did you say that you found that he was he was divorced and kind of said that was a key incident in his life? Yeah, he said that it was the most crucial moment in the development of him and his uh, brothers mm. uh, growing up. And you can kind of see, you know, in his. Uh, Certainly in his uh, in Rushmore, where you know Max Fisher kind of is on some level ashamed of his dad, you know, uh, because his dad's just a barber and he wants to pretend that his uh, that his dad's kind of a big shot mm. when he's not. Um, which actually is a reference, one of many references to the works of to um, Charles Schultz, the creator of Snoopy, who is a, a big influence on Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he. Uh, I think there's a. It's very interesting looking at the number of films in which people have uh, their their very distant relationships with parents, or in the case of Royal Tenenbaums, which uh, he said was kind of very much based on what happened after his parents divorced and the effect it had on him and his brothers. Um, I think you can also see a bit of that in sort of the Darjeeling Limited, which yeah. is also about which is also about a family that uh, is sort of split up after the parents. Uh, I don't think the parents are divorced in that, but the, obviously the father dies before the events of the film. Um, I think you can really see sort of that kind of resonate throughout his films. The idea of sort of like sort of slightly distant, uh, even in uh, Moonrise Kingdom, you know, sort of emotionally distant parents in that regard. Mm. I hated the Darjeeling Limited. I'll say that now. Uh, I didn't like it the first time I watched it. I warmed to it on subsequent viewings, mm. but it's still not one uh, that I sort of care for greatly. I really don't like Angelica Houston's performance in it. She's a great actress, but I don't like what they do with her as the mother. Yeah, there's just a bit where like they're running for the train at the end because they're carrying his their dad's luggage, Super- aren't they? Super- oh, yeah. And they drop them all, and I'm like, oh, for Christ's sake. That's like someone like straight out of film school did that. And, it's a uh, little heavy-handed, isn't it? It's pretty much... They may as well just put a subtitle on uh, <laughs> on the screen saying they've let go of the baggage, so yeah. you, you, it's all right. Um, anyway, moaning aside, my next choice is uh, the Brown family from uh, the uh, Vincent Gallo film Buffalo 66. Um, and when we first talked about doing this podcast, um, I was very much, it leapt to mind when I was kind of thinking about um, when someone brings someone from outside the family, like a girlfriend or whatever, of bringing people in to meet their family for the first time. And Buffalo 66 always pops up because um, being introduced to the family from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre aside, um, it's pretty awkward uh, when they go home because um, it's a family which just cannot communicate at all, uh, to the extent that neither the mum, played by Angelica Houston, who's popping up an awful lot on this podcast, yeah. I noticed, um, and the dad, played by Ben Gazzara, 
don't really mention the fact that their son's been in prison for five years. Um, and Bengazara is more concerned of kind of like lip syncing to kind of old crooner records. And Angelica Houston is obsessed with American football and more specifically the local high school football team, um, hence the title of the film. Um, and it kind of poses a very kind of uh, peculiar family dynamic. Uh, have you seen the film, Ed? Uh, no, I'm not terribly drawn to Vincent Gallo. He just, he strikes me as a bit of a dick. Oh, uh, he's a massive coffin. Yeah, but, but you know, do you, would you say his, his talents kind of outweigh how much of a dick he is? Oh, absolutely not. Um, but Buffalo, <laughs> Buffalo 66 is a really, really great film. Um, everything else he seems to touch uh, is not particularly good. Um, but no, I would if if Buffalo sixty six just existed, and Vincent Gallo wasn't spending the rest of his time kind of selling liters of his own spunk online or just being an absolute right. douche, then um, people would be saying, "Wow, I wonder what this guy's going to do next." Not, yeah. "Don't let this guy make another film again." I do like uh, the fact that he I softened on him after he showed up in um, two days in New York. Did yes, you see that? playing himself. Yeah. Yeah, playing himself as kind of the version that people have of Vincent Gallo in their heads. Mm, who buys? Uh, uh, he buys uh, her soul, doesn't he? Yeah, I I liked. There was a certain self-deprecating kind of stuff that way. He essentially shows up as kind of this kind of embodiment of evil in some ways. It's mm. like of all the people to sell your soul to, yeah. Vincent Gallo's not you know not a good one to go for. The thing is, they probably didn't even tell him that was a part in a film. He probably genuinely <laughs> tried to buy her soul online, and they just had some secret cameras filming. And uh, <laughs> I like he probably just so. turned up. Yeah, um, but no, Buffalo '66 is a fantastic piece of work, and if you can detach yourself from the uh, Gallo circus, then um, then there is much to enjoy. It's on Netflix, so uh, seek it out. Uh, what's your last choice, Ed? My last one is uh, "Distant Voices Still Lives" by mm-hmm. Terence Davis. Uh, which is a slightly uh, happier film than Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but um, not much more, mm-hmm. um, which is all about a sort of a family in Liverpool in the 1950s. Uh, it's got this sort of patriarch played by uh, Pete Postlethwaite, the great, uh, much-missed Pete Postlethwaite. Um, and it's it's all about the kind of the relationship that he has with his wife, which being the 50s and in Liverpool is not the most positive. Uh, you know, there's... You know, he's quite. He's he's a very sort of abusive figure, and and you know, it's all about the the film is essentially divided into two halves. The first half is about sort of them while he's alive, and then it's sort of the, the halfway point. Um, the father dies, and then it's all about sort of the relationships between the kids growing up, and it's a very good film about sort of the the shadow that having sort of an overbearing patriarch has on mm-hmm. sort of the, the various members of the family, and uh, you know, it's it's a really uh, somber film but it's also uh, very beautiful it's got a great sense of sort of community to it and you know there's lots of scenes of people sort of going down the pubs and sort of having big sing-alongs and even though you know things are you know it's sort of post-war austerity and that things are, are quite bleak everyone seems to be sort of sort of banding together in a very sort of uh, exuberant kind of way and there's also all the darkness kind of like moulded in there as well and uh, I think it's just a really wonderful film about um sort of the sort of the, the weird thing that happens when there's a father figure who is you know violent and abusive and sort of can't kind of seem to express himself through any way other than sort of like sort of hateful ways who is still 
sort of that that but whose children still have this sort of like this lure uh, this attachment to him because of the fact that you know he brought them into the world mm. uh, and I think it's a, it's a really uh, it's a really powerful piece of work it's it's probably um, Terence Davis's uh, best best film um, he's still making films isn't he Terence Davis did yeah, you film did last one, year uh, it did was either I think it was either so I think it might be a 2011 film but it only really kind of started playing place in 2012 which was The Deep Blue Sea which was a very similar sort of kind of era uh, with uh, Rachel Weiss and uh, um, Tom Hiddleston. Uh, yeah, he's a uh, he's slow. He's he make he's making more films now than he was because there was a big gap where he basically didn't make films for about ten years. Uh, but he's and then he came back with the documentary about Liverpool in the fifties. He's he has he has uh, his his hang ups. Yeah, yeah, he he has his subject matter that he likes doing, but I think he kind of perfected it in uh, in uh, distant voices, still lives. Sweet. Um, my very last choice, uh, and I've kind of deliberately rearranged the order of mine so we can end on something that's slightly light-hearted rather than this kind right. of grueling cannibalism incest fest that has been this list so far. Um, I've gone for the Tate family from um, 2011's Submarine, which is a film we both love. Yep, definitely. And a film in which uh, the family unit composed of uh, Oliver Tate, uh, played by Craig Roberts, his mum, played by Sally Hawkins, and his dad, played with a brilliant kind of Antipodean downtroddenness um, by Noah Taylor is that the name of the actor who plays that? Uh, yes that's correct yeah, Noah Taylor um, um, and just fantastic because you've got this kind of uh, mum and dad who um, perhaps have passed the spark as shall we say slightly died uh, in their relationship and their son is kind of intent on A keeping it alive uh, whilst also trying to kind of uh, pursue his own romantic liaisons and the film and the way that he relates to his dad who's this kind of sad sack who drinks who kind of has this kind of uh, uh, bit like a depression that kind of overtakes him. And he's a kind of marine biologist, and uh, it's I don't really know what that's got to do with the depression element of it. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a whole kind of thing about being underwater and feeling like you know you're down all the time, and young love and old love that's kind of petered out. And it, there's just too many facets of it that's kind of good and great, and it's the performances are fantastic, and the, the dialogue between them all is brilliant, and um, yeah. No, I don't really know much more to say about it than that. Uh, yeah, I think, you know, all I would add, uh, I'm glad you kind of uh, leaked upon the, the, the dialogue there, because I do think that the way that they talk to each other is a great sort of depiction of a family relationship where they all uh, basically kind of make fun of each other a little bit uh, at various points. Uh, and I like the... The, uh, the particularly the relationship between um, the Sally Hawkins character and Craig Roberts uh, is, I think, a really funny, sweet, and kind of sad depiction of the sort of the, the mother-son relationship, uh, which I think is 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 uh, the, one of the sort of stronger elements of that film. Although, you know, Submarine is is a, in general just a really fantastic piece of work. Yeah, there's a great bit where she's going to talk to him to see if he's all right after he's been in that fight at school and. He's got a black eye, and she says, "Is it self harm?" He's like, well, yeah, "I punch myself in the face." It's just like, you know, it's great. It just, it, yeah, it's really natural. I mean, all those three actors. Um, I mean, I think that's the only thing I've seen Craig Roberts in, but the other two, Noah Taylor mm-hmm. and Charlie Hawkins, are great in everything they do. Oh, definitely, yeah, they're, they're 
Wonderful. Right, cool. So that's our episode on family and uh, our um, little kind of uh, high five uh, ID fest this year. Um, if you want to um, find us on Twitter, you can find me at the Wooden Kimono. Where can we find you, Ed? I am at EJR Davies, uh, D A V I E S. And you can find our respective blogs as uh, Mine's the Wooden Kimono and Ed, we can find you at. Uh, a Mighty Fine blog, and you can also find us on Facebook. Just look for Shop Reverse Shop. Uh, there's two of them. We are the one with more than two likes. Yes, we are the one that is actually a podcast. There is another one that was a podcast. Well, maybe it was an idea of a podcast that never actually got past that stage. Um, yeah. But yeah, that just goes to show what people do these days. They start a Facebook group without actually doing what they're supposed to be promoting with the Facebook page first. Um, but yes, uh, we've enjoyed that. If you like the show, then give us a little uh, review on iTunes. Subscribe to us. That would be nice. And um, yeah, until then... Uh, until next time we're back which we'll be talking about something else equally as interesting as family um, it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me oh,